Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, Ebenezer family and friends. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing our summer series. We're calling it A Long Walk with Jesus. And just like the title sounds, we're going to spend this summer walking with Jesus, listening to his teaching and learning from his interactions with others. Now, we've chosen to do this for a few reasons. Uh, First of all, we think it's important to tell the story of Jesus because his life is the gospel message. But second, we think it's important for people to see and hear the story of Jesus by looking at his life directly and not through the cloud of glasses of someone else's life. You know, I find it fascinating that so many people have such strong opinions about Jesus Christ and his mission without ever really taking the time to study what he actually said or observe how he actually lived and walked through life. Instead, their views are based on others' opinions, and sadly, negative encounters with the church and other Christians who represent Christ poorly. That's so unfortunate because the true Jesus of the Bible is remarkable, and I know that if you knew him, you'd fall in love. Now, one of the upsides of not being able to gather in person is that we've had the opportunity to be more creative with our weekend services. And since everything is virtual, we no longer have to rely on people being physically present with us to speak. So, as you know, during our last series, we seized this opportunity, and we interviewed several scholars and ministry leaders from across North America as part of our Sunday morning teaching team. Now, I know many of you have really enjoyed this and have loved hearing the perspectives of others. Well, we're going to continue to do this over the summer months. We've invited 11 of our missionaries to join one of our pastoral staff as a virtual guest to interact around one aspect of either Jesus' life or his teaching. Now, I think it's going to be a great opportunity to get to know our missionaries and their ministries and learn from their walk with Jesus and their insights into his life. Now, our first guest this morning is a long-time Ebenezer missionary and a dear friend of mine. His name is Eric Stolte. And next Sunday, Pastor Kelly is going to be sharing the teaching time with Eric's son, Leif. So that's kind of a fun deal. Now, many of you already know Eric, but for those who don't, let me quickly introduce him. Eric is a missionary with the Navigators, which is a mission organization committed to making disciples of Jesus. Eric and his wife, Marion, began their ministry in Buffalo, before moving to Saskatoon in 1987 to start a Navigators campus ministry at the U of S here. Eric and Marion moved to Ontario in, I think, around 2003 to serve as president of the Navigators. And after 10 years in that role, Eric stepped aside so he could serve on the International Navigator Task Force on Poverty, Corruption, and Injustice. I consider Eric a close friend and a mentor, and he has been very influential in my life. When I was young and green in the youth pastorate, Eric came alongside me and discipled me, although at the time I probably didn't realize he was doing it. We would get together for a weekly squash game, 
followed by a breakfast and a visit. And, and before too long, we were reading through Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism and discussing a chapter each time we met. Everyone needs an Eric in their life. And God has used him to help me grow as a person and a leader and a disciple of Jesus Christ. So welcome to Ebenezer this morning. And thank you for being our first virtual guest this summer as we kick off our summer series. Let's check in with Eric. Well, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and what and who has shaped your life over the years? Sure. Well, thanks, Leighton. And uh, our years at Ebenezer and in Saskatoon were real joy. We uh, moved to London, Ontario in 2004. And ever since then, we've always missed and always enjoy coming back. But I was actually born in northern New Jersey and uh, was brought up in a kind of a middle class home there. Uh, going to church, Sunday school, but it didn't mean very much to me. And as I got into my high school years, the thing that bothered me most was that good guys finished last, bad guys got away with everything. And if that was the case, like, why even live life? Like, what's the point? Plus, my folks were divorced between my grade 11 and grade 12 years, and that kind mm -hmm. of upset my world as well. So going into my first year of university, I was depressed, was wondering what was going on, was life really worth living? But in the summers, I was working at a YMCA camp. And uh, the summer of 1969, between my first, second years of university, went back to that camp and a fellow by the name of Wayne, who was a born again Christian, became a good friend. And as I explained to him my, my feelings and thoughts, he said, well, Eric, there's a God in heaven who is setting things right. And he's doing that through his son, Jesus Christ. And we, you know, I was, I didn't agree with the Bible. I didn't agree with Wayne. We'd have these big discussions late at night. But after a while, I began to think, well, if what Wayne is true, then what I'm looking for can be found there. So I remember it was on August 3rd of 1969 in my bunk in the wee hours of the morning. I prayed, Jesus, I don't know if you exist. Wayne says you do. Well, if you do, you can come into my life and have it because the fact of the matter is I'm not doing a very good job with it. And I woke up the next morning, and I knew there was a presence in my life I couldn't explain. Well, this gave me uh, hope, like, I guess there is a God in heaven who is setting things right. I didn't have a career path, went to Bible college, met Marion there. And, uh, the, and, and through that time, got very much into the scriptures, became a, a part of my life. Another big influence, you said everybody needs an Eric. Well, I have a bill. And uh, Bill took me under his wing. He mm. discipled me. He, I could tell you a story. We don't have time. How he literally saved my marriage as well. Mary and I were uh, in deep conflict. Bill um, basically said, Eric, do you love your wife? I said, sure I do. He said, well, you never know, know it by what I've seen. And it revolutionized, like that he would be that loving and that caring to take me on that way. Um, you know, Mary and I in 2022 will be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. And so uh, it's a credit to what Bill and Ellen did. But if that was Navigators, and Bill had Navigator training, I wanted to be part of this organization. I was already committed to full-time Christian work in Bible college. And so went, graduated, joined Navigator staff, and uh, you gave a brief history. But the other big impact was in marrying into Marion's family. It's a family that had hemophilia. Hemophilia is a genetically passed on disorder. Marion's dad had hemophilia, which meant she was a carrier. So when we had children, there's a chance, one in two chance, a 50-50 chance that we'd have a child with hemophilia that a girl would be a carrier. So when Leaf was born, our oldest, his, my son, he was born with hemophilia and that entered me into that world. And we've been active volunteers 
with both the Canadian Hemophilia Society and the World Federation of Hemophilia. And what we've seen, 75% of people around the world with hemophilia have little or no access to care. 50% of those born with hemophilia around the world will die before age 10. And so it breaks our heart. That's why we volunteer. But it also has an impact on, pardon me again, the unfairness, the inequity in the world and the issues of justice around that. So I think that gives a, a pretty good you know, intro to who I am and the things that have impacted Yeah. Oh, me. thank you very much. That was excellent. So I shared briefly about the Navigators when I introduced you. But why don't you take a moment just to tell us a bit more about the Navigators and, and their ministry? Sure. So our calling, our mission statement is to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom into the nations through spiritual generations of laborers who live and disciple among all people. So we're committed to this thing called the labor, which is a disciple who makes disciples. And that's how we see the gospel going into the nation. Second Timothy 2, 2, Paul tells Timothy, the things that you had heard from me in the presence of any witnesses, trust a faithful people able to teach others also. So four generations, Paul, Timothy, faithful people, others also. But when we send disciples into the world, more recent thinking has been, what do they, how should they be characterized? And Micah 6, 8 comes to mind there. Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Mm -hmm. And I think traditionally, Navigators have been very strong in helping people walk humbly with God. We've been very good at helping people love kindness, the, the relational nature of our ministry going long and deep with people to really develop them as full and whole disciples of Christ. But what it means to disciple people in terms of doing justice is something we're just coming into. But at the heart, that's the Navigators. We have over 5,000 staff in nearly 100 countries around the world. And basically, it's that long approach to people building into their lives who will build into others and yet others, seeing the Great Commission fulfilled here on Earth. Okay, thanks, Eric. Uh, one of the things I've appreciated about you is how you've spoken um, you know, truth into my life. I, I like how you've been able to challenge my thinking on, on different things. And I think we need to learn from each other because our, our experiences aren't all the same. So in your testimony, you spoke about the justice injustice piece. And, and I know that that's been a growing theme in your life. We can already tell that. Uh, can you share just a bit more about some of the doors that God has opened for you and how you're able to, to live those out right now? Sure. Well, in 2014, when I stepped down from being president, still working full-time for the Navigators, they gave me the opportunity to serve on this international task force on poverty, corruption, and injustice. So I figured, well, I should probably go back to the Bible and take a look at this, because I really hadn't studied the Bible from a justice perspective. I had a six-month sabbatical also, so I started there and began discovering just how central this idea of justice is to the scriptures. There's a, a lot of different things. One of the early uh, books I read was Tim Keller's book called Generous Justice. Highly recommended as a kind of a good intro. Uh, Tim is a, a strong evangelical pastor. He's committed to evangelism, but also sees the centrality of the aspect of justice as we bring the gospel to people. One of the things I learned too was how we've translated different words in the scriptures have influenced our understanding. And there's a Greek word, dikaiosune, that we've translated righteous or righteousness. But it could also be translated justice. So, for instance, in Matthew 6.33, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. 
I thought, well, if we translated it justice and we said, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice and all these things will be added to you, it's a different uh, connotation. When I think of righteousness, I think of, you know, right living, integrity, uh, Christian growth, reading the scriptures, prayer, sharing my faith, these kind of things. But if I translate, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, it moves me beyond just the purely religious into society. What does it mean to do mm. justice and bring justice into society? So that's a lot of what I've been looking at, going back to the scriptures, thinking, how, how are these themes embedded? Uh, just one other quick example is Isaiah 58. Uh, Isaiah writes, if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your judgment will become like midday. Traditionally, I had read that if you give yourself to the hungry, spiritually hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, spiritually afflicted. Now, it's not that that's wrong, but Isaiah isn't writing about spiritually hungry and spiritually afflicted people alone. It's real hungry people, real people under oppression. And as I began realizing that I've been kind of spiritualizing these things, it was almost like reading the Bible for the first time all over again, becoming very excited to see God's activity in this world, moving his kingdom forward. And so the, the navigator calling, which is to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom into the nations, started to fill out and become all the more full, not having to jettison anything I had learned, yeah. but expanding it and enriching it in a beautiful way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's obvious that uh, you have a passion for this and it's something that God's <laughs> been uh, stirring in your heart and mind for years. And honestly, it's an area that, that the people of God need to think uh, more completely and more deeply about. I, I believe that, especially in the season that we find ourselves in. And uh, um, so, and, and it's interesting that, uh, like, I know that this has, that uh, your, your growth curve with God in this area has influenced the passage we picked to study today. But I want the people that are listening to know that, that we had talked about this prior to any of the recent flare-ups that are happening around there. So it's not a reaction to something. It's, it's something that's just, we decided and the timing just happens to be really, really good on, on this. Yeah. Now, um, I, I will just let our church know that, that our speaking team put together a list of about 15 to, to 20 core t uh, teachings of Jesus and critical interactions he had with others. And then we let either the pastoral staff or the, the guest missionary choose which, which passage they would speak on. And, and so Eric, Eric has chosen um, to speak on a passage, a story, a parable in Luke chapter 19. It's, it's a parable uh, commonly known as the parable of the miners. Uh, but before we, we read this parable together, I want you to, to share with our church family, you know, what, what you shared with me about knowing uh, who Jesus' original audience was and, and how understanding that might might shift the way, or at least open our eyes to some different ways of looking at, at Scripture. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on as the, our first guest, because I thought, if we're going to look at Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching, we should probably understand the audience he, he's talking to. And so why don't you just share a bit about, about those things? Sure. So my understanding from the research I've done and different books I've read is that there were, there were, there's kind of four classes of people in Palestine during Jesus' time. Uh, the urban elite and the sub-elite just under them tended to live in cities and towns and that kind of thing. They, they comprise about 15%. The large majority of people, about 75%, uh, 
were families with small land holdings, tenant farmers on rented property, casual laborers, fishermen, which is interesting. So that includes, you know, John and Peter and those, and village artisans. So about 75% of the population, they were economically vulnerable and simply wanted to feed their families. Also, so you get an idea, I just wanted to add a little bit, tenant farmers, okay? Tenant farmers paid their landlords a percentage of the produce of crop between 50, 25 and 50% of the harvest. And then Roman taxes and the temple claimed 20 to 35% on top of that, once that was taken. So can you imagine living in a tax range of 45 to 85% of your earnings? That's how, and, and they weren't, that's 75%, then there was a bottom 10% that were very vulnerable, unemployed laborers, shepherds, beggars, widows, orphans, prostitutes, dung collectors, lepers, and other expendables, they lived in extreme poverty. So when you look at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount or in crowds, 85% of that population were in those bottom two, peasants or the vulnerable. If uh, today's development workers were describing these people, they would describe them as chronically food insecure, malnourished, and disproportionately vulnerable to contagious diseases. Fascinating in light of the current coronavirus pandemic and seeing that same thing being acted out. In Palestine, in Jesus' day, 60% of the children died by age six. And the average life expectancy was just over 30. So there's three words that really describe Jesus' audience. Desperation, deprivation, and resentment. And even there, we can identify crowds of people today that are characterized by these things. And part of the difficulty, Leighton, that I've seen is that we're part of the majority culture. Many of us in evangelical churches and, and across North America, part of the majority culture, we bring our values and the way we see the world. Not only that, those in academia who write about the scriptures are from that segment of the population. So it's, it's harder for us to hear the words of Jesus from a, a desperate, deprived, resentment standpoint, as opposed to our place of uh, privilege that we have. And so it's yeah. been fascinating to try to get, get into the New Testament again. Many of people in Paul's churches were very poor as well. So it, it goes for the writings of Paul as well. Yeah, I think it's a good, good word for us to recognize that all of us read through the Bible through a lens, right? And so that lens could be like if I grew up in a more traditional church, it could be through the lens of God's judgment and justice, or maybe it could be through God's grace or a middle-class perspective. But I, I think we just need to recognize that we all have a lens that we're reading it through. And so we need to look at, you know, different lenses so that we can understand the, the scripture better. So I, I like how this is, I like kind of the basis of this, this talk that that's, that's going to be good. So listen, um, uh, uh, th th this teaching was was given in a certain context, and uh, before we jump into the passage and before I read that, why don't you um, why don't you just kind of help us set the context so we can kind of see a bigger picture, and then we'll try and, and read the scripture and look at it through the context it was in and through the lens of the people that were listening. Right. So, from Luke nine to Luke nineteen, Jesus is on his journey toward Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. If you read those chapters, he, he mentions violence a number of times. He's going to come to a violent death, these kind of things. 
And in the context of the actual parable in Luke 19, 15 to 27, uh, actually verse 14 talks about because people were expecting the kingdom of God to come immediately. Just before that, he had healed the blind man. Again, something that the kingdom would bring. Zacchaeus was converted and goes from kind of a, a Roman crony into someone who's now giving away the wealth that Rome had and, and making things right, setting things right, living according to a much more just system. And so it's creating an expectations around the crowds. And so the they in Luke 19, 14 is the crowds around Zacchaeus that have, have remained, and it includes the disciples. So Jesus is trying to set the stage to let them know, you may be expecting this, but let me tell you a parable about what's really going to happen. Okay, that's so, the stage enough. Yeah, that, that's good. So let, let me just read the parable, and I'm going to be reading it from the New International Version. It's Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 11 all the way down to Luke 26. Luke 19. Sorry, Luke, Luke 19. I just read it wrong in my notes, but that's, that's what it is. Thank you. Um, you mean you didn't study Luke chapter 9? <laughs> okay, here, here we go. Let me just read this. So it says this, that while they were listening to this, he went out to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said this, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And so he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in very small matters take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, did you that I am a hard man, uh, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what, what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I would have collected it with it interest? And he said to those standing by, take this, man, this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even that will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them to me and kill them in front of me. That's the scripture. That's the story that Jesus told. Okay, so what we're going to do now is, is we're going to um, look at this story through, through two lenses. And I'm going to warn our, our congregation that this is going to be, this is going to be stretching. I, I'm stretched already in talking to Eric. But I'm going to look at it through, through the lens that I have traditionally looked at this parable. And you're going to uh, look at it through the lens of the context and also of, of the people that were hearing it, how they might have heard that. 
Okay, right. and I, I would just say to to all of us, um, there's a there's a scripture that talks about the people of Berea who who when they heard the word they went back and, and sought things and looked for themselves. And so it doesn't matter whether it's this this message here we're talking or another message that I happen to speak on. When I say something, like you should be going back to, to the word of God and seeking God for yourself on this and so we can grow and understand. But what I do like is that uh, it, it kind of um, shakes up the kind of the, the tradition of the status quo and helps to see things through some different lenses, which could give us a, a fuller picture of God. Okay, is that, does that sound fair, Eric, for what I you bet. said there? You bet, I totally agree. Like, and, and as we contrast these two ways, it's not like one is right and one is wrong. It's let's, let's get a full understanding of scripture. And the way, you know, you're going to take more of the kind of traditional or, you know, popular way of doing it. There are other par parables that use slave illustrations that would fit that paradigm. The question is, does this one fit that paradigm? Or in light of where it is in the scripture and what we've learned, should we look at it in a different way? And maybe we should. And here's a suggestion. Okay, so so here we go. We'll, we'll see how this how this rolls out for us. Okay, so so the first one is uh, some of the main characters, and it seems like the main character is the nobleman. Now, in, in my the way I've I've understood this parable and the way I've taught this parable is the nobleman is is Jesus, and he is he is the the coming king who is going to Jerusalem, and. Uh, and the kind of the, the idea is that he is going to go away to a distant place to heaven to receive his his you know his coronation, and then he's going to come back as the as the king of the land. So that's how I've kind of interpreted the the nobleman. And now uh, looking through the different lens, how would how would you happen to see that? All right. So if, a couple things. If I'm a, a a tenant farmer, first of all, noblemen became noblemen because they stole my land. So to view God or Jesus as a being represented by a nobleman is already, you know, there, there's questions around that, okay? Because uh, in the parable it says, you know, the, the uh, slave says, I knew you were a hard man, sowing where you did not reap, these kind of things. And the nobleman says, you're right. That's exactly what I am. The question is, would Jesus pick the as an example of who he is someone who's deeply embedded in a system of injustice depriving people of land for their own benefit doesn't seem likely to me but you know uh, god can do what he wants in these things the, the other piece is that the actual historical there's actual historical accuracy the son of herod archelaus actually did go to rome to receive the full uh, to actually expand his territory that his father had had. But there was a group from Jerusalem that went there to, to tell the Roman officials, no, don't do this. And they partly succeeded. So when he came back, his land was limited. And of course, he took his revenge on these people that had come from Jerusalem in light of his place. So we even have Jesus using, unusually, using a historical piece around this that everybody would have been aware of which is very unusual for his parables. Normally he doesn't base them in actual history. Yeah, so we're looking at this through the lens of just like spiritualizing this. And you're saying that, that Jesus is actually referencing um, a live event that's happening that people know about. And they, yeah, would have, they would have 
understood nobleman in a different context. Okay. Right. He's, uh, there, we, we don't need to um, make it metaphorical, right? The, the nobleman doesn't stand for someone else. This is what noblemen do. They, they entrust riches to others and so forth. We'll get a little bit more into that as we move along. Yeah. And, and by the way, contextually, again, in, in that time, people would have to leave to a different country to become the king before they would come back. So that was consistent with even that culture back then. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then we have the, the 10 slaves. And, and I've always viewed this as these, these 10 slaves are the people of faith in Jesus who are, who are God's servants and God's entrusting them to, to carry on his work while he's gone, just like we today, uh, as believers of God, we're, we're entrusted to do what God has asked us to do. And so I would, I would consider myself as, as one of the 10 servants, like if we were, this parable was living today. And, uh, and now through the lens of the, the audience that Jesus was talking to, what might those slaves have been? Well, again, the real people. There were trust, landowners would have trusted people working for them in a servant capacity that they would ask to carry on the landowner's business in their absence. So it's like, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that happening. It happens all the time. Okay, and then the next one is, is the mina. Which is uh, which is a uh, which is the money, right? And I, I know that in some of the other uh, parables and some other translations, they actually even uh, translated it as talents. And I've taken my my good um, Greek words and I've just said talent. That's something that we have inside. So I've actually I remember you know speaking to youth about using their talents for the Lord and and just making it something that it wasn't uh, money. But I've often looked at it as as what we have to offer God, and that's what. That's what the leverage was. That's what the, the value that he was talking about. And in this parable, you're saying that what? It's, it's actual money. Like he's actually giving them uh, money. A mina was about 100 days wages. So it's about three years wages that he's giving each of these 10 servants. Obviously, he's fairly wealthy, but these aren't outrageous sums. Uh, occasionally, Jesus will, like in the parable on forgiveness, he talks about, you know, a number of talents. It's like million dollars or something. And that, that, um, feeds into the idea of more metaphorical use. But again, here, he's talking about real slaves, real money, real noblemen. This is the way life works. Yeah, if I think if I remember my research, uh, a mina was like a, like a six-month wage. Do you remember exactly what it was? 100 days was what I, I, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, and then, then the next group is the citizens. And, and uh I always looked at those people as, as the ones who were, were opposing Jesus and his work, the ones who were, were anti-Christ, anti-his kingdom coming. And, and in, this, in this parable, you would refer to what? Well, I think Jesus is referring to actual people, right? Again, he's using Archelaus as a, an actual historical model. So these were uh, Jews who had opposed Archelaus and his, his expanded rule in Judea. <laughs> Okay, and likewise, and the faithful servants, uh, the faithful slaves, I also saw as the ones who were being the faithful Christians who, who um, made use, use of their time with God and his kingdom on earth while they were here. And you're saying, again, it's, it's real people. Right, because again, as, an, as a tenant farmer, I would understand that the way these servants have faithfully administered the landowner's money would be to bring, give, put people in debt so that they couldn't collect, so that they couldn't pay, so that they could get their land 
or get their goods or, or something, put them in a state of obligation to the landowner. So they're actually, the, the, the economic system here is deeply unjust. It's deeply oppressive. And so the slaves, by being faithful to that, are simply working the unjust economics of the day to feed the landowner who's already rich on the back of a tenant farmer. So when a tenant hears that, he says, yeah, I know what they do. You know, I got in trouble with that last year kind of thing, right? So they can identify real life as part of this, recognizing the unjust system that they're in. Okay, so then what's the reward that, that uh, they're speaking of in your context? Literal. Like, you know, the, the noble moon comes back and finds one of his servants having done what he wants. He's going to reward him for that. You know, the, the, those in places of power reward those who are faithful to them. We see this in political patronage. We see it all over the place. Interesting. And again, in my more traditional view of that, I would have, I kind of view that as this is our heavenly reward for doing what God has asked us to do. Right. Okay. Um, it's, it's going to get a little bit more, uh, so far I, I'm tracking with you. Okay. And so right. far I'm going, I, I can live with what you're saying. Um, there's some pieces coming up here that, that make me squirm a bit, but that's, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, sure. then we have the, then we have, uh, the worthless slave. And this is where it gets, starts getting a little bit, uh, a little bit hotter for me. Okay. Uh, sure. just being honest. So, oh, and I will always looked at that person as the, as the unfaithful Christian, the, the one that, we don't aspire to and you're now kind of you're flipping this whole thing around on me okay so so who's the worthless slave uh and what's what's his story and and right. even you the punishment be... i always thought the punishment right. was just just a, a lack of reward uh right. for uh for unfaithful you know right. service to the king now right. why don't you just kind of share a bit more about that so here i am a landless palestinian tenant farmer I look at the faithful slaves and I don't like them because they're continuing on with the unjust economic treatment of their landlord. That's why they're being rewarded. So the unfaithful slave who buried the talent brings it back. He's my hero. Like he's not giving into the unjust system. He's uh, standing in opposition to the status quo that's going to put me further, uh, you know, further behind, more taxes, all this further down the scale of poverty. And so he becomes my hero. He's going against the grain. And um, in fact, uh, the, the, the comments of the landowner to the slave, he doesn't call him lazy, he calls him evil. So he's actually standing in opposition to the landowner's values, which from a Palestinian tenant farmer standpoint are all the values of anti-kingdom. They go against setting things right. They set things wrong. And it's interesting when the landowner says you could at least put it in the bank and drew interest, right? We think, oh yeah, let's go to Bank of Montreal or TD Trust or whatever. You know, he could have leased on that. It's not those people. The, the Greek word there for bank is actually table. And the reason it's table is that in Jesus' days, you'll recall when he cleansed the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers. Those were the bankers of the day. So tables were where banking transaction happened. And again, there was, there was uh, interest charge, which is interesting because three times in the Old Testament, Israelites are told, you don't charge interest to a fellow Israelite. Well, these money changers were. 
So by the nobleman telling the slave he should have put it into the bank, he should have brought it to the table, he's telling him you should have participated in another aspect of unjust economic privilege, that the money changers would, would at least charge other people that you know interest, which was wrong anyway. So again, it's, it's interesting that all that the landowner does, he sows where he doesn't reap, he wants it to be money to be put with people who have corrupt banking practices, indicate that he's anything but somebody to be admired. And hmm. so again, the, the pe peasants are, are cheering on the evil slave saying, go for it, brother, we're with you, stand against that man. Okay, then the last part of the parable, you know, so like as I read through the parable a few times, uh, in, you know, as we get near the end, I, I don't see, I don't, I don't naturally see in the story God or um, the scripture kind of elevating the, the unfaithful servant as the, as the hero, like you're talking about. And what I do see, though, is the slaughter of, this, of the citizens, which I've always looked at judgment of those who oppose Christ in the gospel. Now, so how do you, through this different lens, and how would you see that? Those who are, again, in Jesus' day, rich and powerful by virtue of exploiting people will reward those who stand with them, oppose those who stand against them. So again, it's a merciless slaughter. God, even in judgment, isn't a merciless slaughterer of simply of people who have opposed him. God's judgment is righteous, and he uses judgment to set things right. So again, we see this, this merciless thing happening. And this is what happened historically. When Archelaus came back, he, he opposed, possibly put to death, some of the people from Jerusalem who had gone to Rome to oppose his expansion of rule. So again, Jesus is referring to actual history that people could identify with. But the point of the parable is, for those, while we're waiting for the Lord's return, for those who resist the economic exploitation of people, who actually live for the sake of the kingdom, where all things are set right, can anticipate full opposition from those who are so vested in the status quo that they don't want things to change. Hence, Jesus' own crucifixion as he stood against the status quo. Paul uses constant fight language as he wants us to move into mission because we're, we're fighting against the, the principalities and powers that rule in this world that keep people enslaved and deal death to millions of people. Wow. <laughs> you know that that's it's it's uh it's stretching for me I, yeah. I would be lying if i didn't say that as i look through this that, that there's not a degree of of uh like i need to go back and look at this and understand yeah. more but when we were talking like you know like as we always meet ahead of time we kind of talk through things so we know and i remember me mentioning to you that just last week in our sermon on romans one of our main points is we celebrate the gospel because because um because Jesus is the center of that gospel. And, and I right. think even right now that we, you know, we have to be careful that, that the lenses that we're looking through are not just the lens of, of a different, um, instead of judgment and grace, now we're looking at through the lens of, 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 uh, of justice and injustice. And, and uh, for me, um, and what I was compelling as we talked is that, is that we agreed that um, 
that Jesus was uh, committed to people's, um, to make the wrongs right and to, to change things. And so um, I'm, still, like, I'm still thankful that, that um, as we look at this passage, this was the life of Jesus, and we can, we can celebrate that. Now, so you've turned this parable upside down for me. I'm, I'm sure that you've rocked some others, uh, some others in our church family, in our kind of a traditional view of things, and I'll, I'll probably get a few phone calls later on. So again, as I'd like to joke that if you have any emails, you want to just send them to me at chet at ebenezerbaptist.ca, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'll be happy to answer those. Now, uh, in a way... <laughs> Where was I going with this? No, let's just, let's just wrap up, um, wrap up and, and maybe, uh, can you, can you kind of draw out a couple, you know, maybe, you know, two or three kind of key ideas or, or key takeaways that might reshape how we live our lives in light of this, this parable. Sure. So again, the, the point of Jesus parable, which he said is what can we expect if we live following Jesus? What can we expect? And so he's, he's setting the stage to recognize, expect opposition. Jesus himself experienced that. His crucifixion is a model for us. Uh, Peter said, you know, those who live godly will face persecution. Now, in different places, you'll face more or less depending upon the amount of opposition. But there are those who, who see their place of privilege sometimes threatened by kingdom values, where all people have equal dignity, where, where we want to set things right. One of the, to me, the good definitions of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is where everything is as it should be. Mm, yeah, I like that. I love that. You know, justice is setting things right. And so when I think of this, uh, a couple takeaways for me that I try to think through for myself is that First of all, I need to align myself with Jesus. We're supposed to be Christ-like. So the more I read the Gospels, the more I say, how, how does my life reflect the same way Jesus does? And again, that verse, Micah 6.8, really helps me in terms of walking humbly with God. Jesus did that. Everything that he saw the Father doing, he did. He loved mercy. He loved kindness. We see that constantly in the way he treated people that were being deeply mistreated by society. And he did justice. Um, and we see that in, in the way he talks about his own mission in Luke chapter 4. In fact, um, there he says, just let me um, grab it. Yeah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to pre preach the gospel to the poor. He has set me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's the good news, right? So when I think of all that, I think, and first of all, there's me and God. I need to be set right with God. And to me, that's the heart of the beginning of justice. Jesus died to set us right with God. And so I need to think about that. Am I right with God? Am I trusting, am I loyal to who Jesus is in a way that puts me in that right relationship? Then the next circle is kind of the circle of just those who are around me. An example of this is um, not too long ago, uh, there's a, a wonderful couple we live next door to, and uh, the woman happened to sprain her ankle. Marion saw her kind of, you know, limping around and realized she had sprained her ankle, chatted with her, went out, brought her flowers, and brought flowers back to her. Well, 
To me, that's a simple act of setting things right for our neighbor. It shows that somebody cares, that there's people that are willing to consider her. Well, that's, setting, that's where things are as they should be. That's the way we should be treating one another. So I see those within the paradigm of what it means to do justice. Uh, another thing our church is involved in, I know Ebenezer has these kind of initiatives too, is we do a community meal. For those who are food insecure and homeless, we combine with another church, we put on, before COVID, we put on an in-person dinner for anywhere from 80 to 100 people. Now we've been doing takeout meals for the same group, but we want to set things right. When people have nothing mm -hmm. to eat, we're just setting things right for people, not in a systemic way, but in a yeah. practical way. But then occasionally, I think we need to also think of how do we stand in solidarity with the marginalized, with the oppressed of our society? And to me, the first thing I need to do is listen, hear those voices. What are they telling me? Because from that, I need to learn what is it, God, that you want me to hear in their voices. And then I need to act in some way. And that how we act can be very, very different for any person. But we, we need to act. We need to, justice isn't something we just think about. It's to do justice. So what does it mean to set things right in those contexts? It's a myriad of different ways to, to apply that. I think the second takeaway for me, Leighton, and you've really focused on this too, is we anchor ourselves in the scriptures. There's a lot of justice and social justice talk that isn't yeah. anchored in the scriptures. Yeah. But the scriptures do address justice. In fact, one of the fun things to do for me is since I heard about that word righteous and righteousness being translated justice, is every time I read that word in my Bible reading, re-saying it with the word justice instead. And sometimes there's fascinating insights, sometimes it may not quite fit right, but it is an interesting thing to do. We need to go back to the scriptures and recognize how did those original people hear these words and what does that mean for me as I live in the 21st century? So those would be two things. Eric, that's, that's, that's great. So, so thank you for once again, rocking my world and, and shaking up my thinking. You've given me lots to think about. And, and I, you know, I, no doubt that the Jesus heart was towards um, bringing justice to the people. And, and I, I want to be part of that too. I want to help set things right with the power that, that we have. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I think, just to our church family again, because I'm not sure exactly how everyone is hearing this, but uh, it, it's okay for us to have our, our thoughts stretched. And if we all we ever listen to is what we already believe, we're just going to get more firmly entrenched in that. And so I've appreciated Eric in my life because he's he's been kind of that other voice that's kind of challenged my perspectives. And sometimes I've shifted and I've aligned with them. And sometimes I've Kind of refortified in my own ways because I've looked at the scriptures myself. So, but this was a this is a great journey through this uh, through this teaching to kind of see uh, Christ's heart in a different way. So I, I thank you, Eric, for being part of our our church uh, family here today. As it, I miss you, I wish you guys were around more. But God bless you. Let me just close in prayer, and, and then and then we'll we'll close off today. Just so to, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say to the friends of Ebenezer who are watching this that we can't see. We miss you guys a lot too. And uh, so thankful that we can follow you. We get the weekly updates. And uh, if you're ever, any of you are ever in London, you have an open invitation to stay with us and visit us. We'd love to uh, see you. So thank you so much. And thank you for your ongoing support. It means a lot to us. You're welcome. So let me pray. So Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Uh, thank you for your love for those that are on the margins. 
and you care for them, you care for those that are facing injustices. And, and I don't even think that in this world we're going to see that completed until you come back again. So we long for you, Jesus, to come back. And we long for you to be the king of this world and the king of our lives. And so right now, God, we submit to you and we just say that, that you're our Lord and we want to hear you. So Holy Spirit, uh, you're the one who opens our eyes and ears to truth. And so God, speak to us and speak to us about how we can play a role in the society that we live that's, that's being torn apart right now by some of the issues we've talked about today and help us to be people who, who uh, love mercy and, and to bring justice. And so God, guide us in these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you very much and nice to have you here today. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.